Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to wake up this morning that you allowed us to experience the beauty and the power of your atonement. Father, I pray that as we uh, open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that you will open our eyes to the reality of what you have in store, and that it be your word that's spoken, your heart received, and your voice that meets with us today. Father, let nothing of me be involved except that which you have established for this purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says... Amen. Uh, so one of the special readings that is done on Yom Kippur, and traditionally it's actually done later in the day on Yom Kippur, but is the book of Jonah. Uh, and I really like, anybody read Jonah before? I hope so. Uh, it's only four chapters. I mean, you could do it pretty quick if you had to. Um, but uh, Jonah is a really fun book for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, because it's just a really gnarly story. You know, dude gets ate by a big fish and then comes out the other side okay. Well, not the other, the same side okay. Um, but he comes out all right, which is kind of crazy to try and picture. And so a lot of people look at it, a lot of people in the modern world look at it and go, oh, it's clearly just allegory because who could survive for three days inside of a, a giant fish underwater and da da Well, we're talking about God. You know, it's, it's amazing the things that he's capable of. Um, you know, it's a much smaller list of the things he's not capable of, uh, which is you know, pretty much nothing. Um, and so when we're talking about the book of Jonah, I wholeheartedly believe that it is factual and that it is reality. Although it doesn't make sense in our world today, uh, it is, uh, I believe, a reality. But aside from that, it's got some really interesting things for us to look at in terms of what does repentance actually look like? And then beyond that, what does repentance look like for God's people versus the rest of the world? Um, when we look at the book of Jonah, it's dealing with a guy named Jonah who is a prophet from Israel. By the way, he's also mentioned in, I think it's 2 Kings and talking about the reestablishment of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. In 2 Kings, the Lord speaks prophecy through him, uh, I believe during the reign of Jeroboam II, of the promised restoration of the boundaries of Israel. Uh, so we, we recognize that he's not just you know, a one-hit wonder. He's actually uh, in other places in Scripture as well. But the, the prophet Jonah, uh, the Lord calls him to bring a message to a place called Nineveh. Uh, if you're not familiar historically with Nineveh, Nineveh was a, uh, the third and final capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was you know, pretty much one of Israel's worst enemies ever. Uh, the Assyrians are, uh, were hugely problematic for a very long time for the nation of Israel. Uh, and Nineveh is also a city, Genesis tells us, that uh, uh, was built by... Um, my mind just went blank on his name, Nimrod. There we go. Was built by Nimrod. Uh, so it's an old city. It was a huge city. Uh, some of the estimates say somewhere around 60 miles uh, across from point to point. Uh, we know Jonah took three days to walk on foot from one side of the city to the other. It was huge. Uh, scripture tells us there are 120,000 people in this city, which in those days is a lot of people. Um, but nonetheless, Nineveh was a very uh, dangerous, or Assyria in general, was a very dangerous place for Jewish people to find themselves haphazardly wandering into. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for Israelites to make their way into the Assyrian Empire and never come back out alive, never be heard 
word from again. So in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Now the word of Adonai came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Rise up, go to the great city Nineveh, and call out to her, for their evil has risen before me. Now, pause there. Jonah, Jewish guy, right? His blood descendancy of Abraham. It's blood descendancy of Isaac, blood descendancy of Jacob. They've got a history of the Lord says, get up and move, and you do. And Jonah doesn't. Jonah, I mean, he moves, but in the entirely wrong direction. The next verse says, but Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of Adonai. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Adonai. You ever tried to run from the presence of God? Don't work so well. He's got this weird trick of being everywhere. And you can't get away from him. He went down to Jaffa and found a ship going to Tarshish, uh, paid the fee and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Adonai. So the Lord says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. I want you to share with them that I am sick and tired of their stupidity, right? Well, Jonah's an Israelite, you know, in all honesty, at this point in time in Israel's history, Israel's pretty used to hearing this message, uh, and, and there will be countless more prophets that will relay the same message to them uh, over the next several years in their history, uh, but as we're looking at this, Jonah has this, this calling from the Lord to go to a city in an uh, empire that he knows it's very well likely he ain't coming out of alive. He's never going to see the light of day again if he steps foot into it, and Jonah goes, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I, I, don't, I don't really want to do that. That's not at all uh, where I, I, I see myself. That's not part of my five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. Um, I'm going to run. And so he gets on a boat. He hires a boat to take him to Tarshish, and he heads on his way. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, arises this ridiculously monstrous storm that begins to shake the boat. The guys are petrified. The, the crew on the ship are absolutely scared to death. Uh, they have no clue what's going on. They start throwing the cargo overboard, uh, trying to save the, the day, hoping maybe that will help them stay alive without the extra weight on the boat. Um, they cry out for everybody to get up and to, to pray to their gods for everything to be settled and, and nothing changes. And then they happen to find Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat, out cold. Sound familiar? Sounds like Yeshua, right? Boats are rocking, his disciples come, yo, how are you sleeping down here? And he's like, how are you afraid? You know who I am. Why are you? I don't get it. But Jonah's down here just sleep, knocked out, sleeping in the, the, the bottom of the boat. And they come and say, hey, who is your God? You're the only one not petrified for this. You're the only one that clearly hasn't been crying out to your, who is, who is your God? It's better yet, as a matter of fact, who are you? Where are you from? And who do your people serve? Because this is curious. They cast lots and come to find out the lots fall on Jonah as being the one who is responsible for the storm. So in verse 8, it says, Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account is this evil happening to us? What is your profession and where did you come from? What is your land and from what nation are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear Adonai, God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became afraid with an overwhelming fear. And they said to him, What have you done? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of Adonai, but he had not told them. So right out the gate, these are, if you didn't catch on by the fact that they said, go and pray to your God, speaking to the crew, all of your gods, whoever they may be, pray to, him, to them that they may save us. They don't believe in Adonai. They don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have no connection at all to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet when Jonah says, uh, I am a Hebrew. I fear the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land that resonated deep within them. And it took over. And all of a sudden they realized, wait a second, something bigger is going on here. And they said, what have you done to us? 
So they said to him, what should we do to you so the sea will become calm for us? For the storm was raging on. Now, logically, the answer here is turn the boat around and head back to uh, Nineveh. Drop me off as close as you can there. Things will be all right, right? Nope. Jonah's still hell-bent on getting away from the presence of God at all costs, literally at all costs. His response, notice he doesn't pray. He doesn't go, well, let me go seek my, the face of my, my God and he'll give me an answer for you. Or He says, just throw me in the sea. Pick me up, throw me into the sea. He said to them, then the seas will become calm for you, for I know it is because of me this great storm is upon you. So he instantly says, just kill me. Throw me off in the waters. I'll die. It'll all be all right. You don't have to worry about it. Waters will set down for you. And guess what? I don't have to go to Nineveh. It's okay with me too. Still works out all right. Uh, and so this whole thing goes down. They, they reluctantly are like, no, we don't want to do that. It's not really how we play. Uh, you know, you paid us for this. You're a good customer. We don't want... And so they start trying to paddle back to shore to no avail. They're not getting anywhere. Finally, they cry out to the Lord uh, in, in verse 14. So they cried out to Adonai and said, please, Adonai, don't let us perish on account of the soul of this man and don't put innocent blood on us for you, Adonai, have done as you please. So they picked up Jonah threw him into the sea, and the sea stilled from its raging. Then the men became afraid with an overwhelming fear of Adonai, and they offered a sacrifice to Adonai and made vows. Now, I want you to grasp this. You've got Jonah. He's a Hebrew prophet, an Israelite prophet. He's a Jewish prophet that the Lord has called to go to the nations, right? Now, at this point, Israel's all about, let's be our own people. Let's stay separate from everyone else. Let's not worry about, but what is it that Isaiah tells us over and over and over again, God called Israel out to be, a light into the nations. So Jonah's got this message to go to the nations, go particularly to Nineveh and Assyria, and to preach a message of repentance. And he refuses to do it. Yet somehow he ends up on this boat full of people of the nations And he shares exactly what's going on, and he still leads some people of the nations to the Lord. When it says that they offered sacrifices and made vows to them, they turned their life over to God. They stopped everything. They stopped serving their gods, the gods of the the lands that they came from, and they started serving Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (coughs) Excuse me, because they recognized who he is, what he can do. And what he wants to do for his people. So in the midst of all of this, the beginning of Jonah's horrendous ministry, he still is used by God to lead people from the nations back to the Lord. So as we look at this, Jonah then is swallowed up by this great fish. The scripture says that, that the Lord uh, um, prepared this fish for him. I'm thinking like a you know, sushi chef preparing him, but it wasn't quite like that. Uh, that he prepared this giant fish for him. Uh, and a lot of times people are going, well, maybe it's a well. Well, a well's not a fish. First off, but aside from me, I guess in theory it could be. It's big enough. It could have swallowed. Anybody ever seen pictures of giant groupers? Not saying it's a giant grouper either. I'm just saying wells aren't the only option. There are giant groupers that, I mean, they swim at the depths of the, the sea. And so if the Lord prepared, he had to bring it up from wherever the depths were that it was uh, residing in. Uh, and there are giant groupers that are big enough to swallow human beings. It's crazy. So it didn't have to be a well. So when people go, well, there's no fish that big. It had to be a well. And the Bible's wrong because it says fish. Well, no, there are. And it's absolutely possible. We have no clue what's below the depths that we're able to get to. There's life down there that we could never imagine. And so he's in the the belly of this uh, fish for three days and three nights. And uh, he cries out, uh, ultimately cries out to God. I'm guessing after he realized he wasn't dying, 
Not only did he not drown to death in the waters, but here he is stuck in the gut of this fish, and he's still alive, and he's still kicking. Um, decides, well, I guess I might as well find a way out of this thing. So he cries out to the Lord, and if you read chapter 2 of Jonah, it's really not that heartfelt of a repentance by any means. And a lot of people will look at this and go, but Jonah repented, and he went to Nineveh and did exactly but he didn't really at all. Uh, in fact, at verse 10, he says, but with uh, but I, with a voice of thanks, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from Adonai. Then Adonai spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground, dry land. And they say it was probably somewhere near Nineveh, because immediately after that, chapter 3, he goes to Nineveh. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now the word of Adonai came to Jonah a second time, saying, Rise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out to it the proclamation that I am telling you. And I imagine at this point, Jonah Half of them's going, I should try to run again. I should try to run. It didn't work out last time. Okay, I guess I'll just go do it. Whatever. So he goes on his way. Verse 3, so Jonah rose up and went to Nineveh according to the word of Adonai. Now Nineveh was a great city to God, the length of a three-day journey. So Jonah began to come into the city for one day's journey, and he cried out saying, another 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, not a huge, tremendous message. As a matter of fact, I kind of picture Jonah just walking through the streets with kind of the attitude of repent and die, repent and die, repent or die, repent or die, I hope you die. Uh, but I guess you can repent, maybe you won't die, but I still hope you die. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not very heartfelt about it. He really doesn't have a desire to see the Ninevites or the Assyrians as a whole turn to the Lord. But he goes through with the bare minimum of what was required of him. And he speaks this word. Verse 5 says, the, Then the people of Nineveh believed God and called for a fast and wore sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made a proclamation, saying, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, may taste anything. They must not graze nor drink water, but cover man and beast with sackcloth. Let them cry out to God with urgency. Let the, each one turn from his evil way and from the violence in his, own, in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn back from his burning anger so that he, we may not perish. When God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked ways, God relented from the calamity that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. Instantaneously, the entire city of Nineveh, off of a haphazard completely wasted effort, non-genuine uh, non message of repentance and salvation from the prophet of God, Jonah. The entire city turns their hearts to the Lord and turns back. You know what's really messed up about this story, though? Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is pretty messed up. Because as soon as Jonah is done with the bare minimum that he had to do, which was go and preach the word, not even certain that he really waited around in the gates of the city long enough to see the hearts of the people turn. He left the city, he went up to a hill that overlooked the city of Nineveh, and he was awaiting the fireworks. Even though he was an Israelite and was fully aware of the forgiving, merciful, gracious nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though he was fully aware that there was a mixed multitude that left Egypt, and went into the wilderness, even though he was fully aware that God's desire was for Israel to go to the nations. He didn't want to go to this nation, and he didn't want to see this nation saved. He didn't want to see this nation come to the Lord. He didn't want to see this nation be turned back in their hearts to the Lord. He didn't want to see any of that happen at all. 
All he wanted to see was Nineveh blown to smithereens. How many of you, unfortunately, have heard believers talk about that, about talk like that about Arab countries? You know, the same God that wanted to see the Assyrians come to faith is the same God that we serve today that wants to see every Muslim in this world come to faith. It's just the reality about it. Is our attitude any better than Jonah's? Is our heart any better than Jonah's? So then Jonah climbs his hill and he's waiting for the fireworks. He wants to see this city demolished. Chapter 4 tells us that he built the sukkah and he rested under the sukkah. But he was still in the heat and he was burning up. And so it says that the Lord allowed this uh, uh, plant to grow up and provide shade for him. All overnight there was a plant. Poof, there it was. There's a plant there providing shade for him. It's got to be a pretty good sized plant to provide shade for a human being. Uh, but he's, his, his plant arises and it provides shade for him and says the next night the Lord brought a worm in that ate the plant. It's either a pretty big worm or, uh, or it's got some weird bacteria in its guts or something that caused this thing to, but this giant plant that grew up overnight now dies overnight. And so uh, all of a sudden this plant's dead and he's back in the sun. He's complaining and grumbling, but predicating this, he cried out to the Lord at the very beginning of the chapter, uh, verse two. So he prayed to Adonai and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country, that what I anticipated fleeing to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and full of kindness and relenting over calamity. So please, Adonai, take my soul from me because better is my death than my life. Says the Lord, look, I, I, we both knew good and well this was what the outcome was going to be. They were going to turn their hearts and you were going to forgive them. I, could, I, I told you before I ever left the land of Israel that this was going to happen. This is why I ran away because I didn't want this to happen. I wanted them to die. I wanted them to get what was coming to them. Jonah never repented. Not only that, but he got mad at God about the plant that God was using as an example to Jonah to awaken him up. Verse 10, but Adonai said, you have pity on the plant for which you did not labor or make it grow that appeared overnight and perished overnight. So shouldn't I have pity on Nineveh, the great city that has in it more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left as well as many animals. Lord says to Jonah, the, the pity, the, the, the graciousness you had to this plant that you had nothing to do with, shouldn't I have even greater compassion towards the Ninevites, 120,000 people that, oh, by the way, I created. By the way, it's my breath that is in their lungs. Shouldn't I be even more gracious to them? little historical fact for you about why the book of Jonah is so messed up. Jonah, as we've already discovered, never actually repented. He wanted to see them die. But what people often don't realize when they read the book of Jonah, because a lot of times we get the Sunday school version that's edited down to make Jonah seem awesome. Uh, Jonah was really a dirtbag, but that's beside the point. Uh, Jonah went in and he preached in Nineveh. They turned their hearts to the Lord, but people don't realize that approximately 100 years later, Nineveh was wiped off the face of the map. The Assyrians were wiped out. All because they eventually turned back to idolatry. They eventually went back to the ways that God had called them from. Now imagine how much different things would have been, could have been, may have been, had Jonah spent the time to disciple after he had preached the message of repentance. Imagine what things could have been if Jonah had simply had the right heart when he preached that message and stuck around long enough to be used by God further. Imagine how things would have been different 
for not just this city of 120,000. How many more was there at 100 years later? But this is the capital of an empire that was entirely wiped out off the face of the planet. And then we look at our own lives and we got to wonder, are we like Jonah? Do we live our lives in the same manner where the Lord calls us to do something? And at the very least, we give a bare minimum effort, just enough to say, but God, we did it. And look, the outcome's exactly what I knew was going to happen. The story of Jonah points out the reality, actually several realities. First and foremost, God's heart for all creation, not just for Israel, not just for the Jewish people, but for all creation. His heart, his desire, his burning passion is to see all who breathe the breath of life come back through the blood of home and the Messiah, through Teshuvah, through true repentance. And he's called you and I as followers of Messiah to be used to that purpose, just as he called Jonah to be used to that purpose, to go and to share the message of Messiah. And look, there's a lot of people the Lord may send us to that at the start we may not like. We may not like what their lives look like. We may not like the, the types of lives that they live. We may not like the, uh, the environment, the country, the heat, the humidity, the anger, the aggression, the religions that they're wrapped up in, whatever it may be. We may go into it not liking the scenario. But we can't have the heart of Job who goes in and does a base effort, bare minimum, and then hopes that they die anyways. This isn't what God called us to. The second is, there's a clear understanding from the story of Jonah that the life that Jonah lived was not a life of repentance. That just doing what God called us to do just to get God off our back isn't repentance. Not by any means. God desires for us to turn our entire lives over to him. You know that passage that we read in our uh, liturgy every week? Uh, the passage that we so boastfully take uh, joy in from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jonah didn't do that. If he did, he would have had the Lord's love, which is reciprocal from that command, for them. You know, we say it in the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and then we turn around and say, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not talking about just the people in your neighborhood. It's not talking about just the people in your country. It's not talking about just the people in your denomination. It's not talking about just the people in your flavor of Judaism. It's talking about all of those that God created around us. All of those that breathe the breath of life. In the Gospels, we see two individuals who had prime opportunity to show us a better example of repentance than Jonah. One was a guy named Judas. Another was a guy named Peter. If you pay attention to both of their stories, they really didn't do anything that much different than each other. Judas sold Yeshua out. Peter sold Yeshua out. It's just the reality about it. They both sold him out. Both were prophesied that they were going to do so. Yeshua told uh, Judas, you're going to be the one that hands me over and tells Peter, you're going to be the one that denies me. Both of them prophesied in advance it was going to happen. Both of them followed through with it, and both of them sold Messiah out. But only one of them actually turned back to the Lord. See, I don't think Judas's issue was that he sold Yeshua out. 
I think Judas's biggest sin was he didn't return back to the Lord. Because when we look in John chapter 21, Yeshua appears to the disciples as they're out fishing and make some breakfast and they sit down as a nice big happy family and eat. And verse 15 says, when they had finished breakfast, Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. He said to him, take care of my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third, for a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Yeshua said to him, feed my sheep. See, I have no doubt in my mind that Judas could have had a similar experience with the Lord. Had Judas simply stuck around. But Judas took his own life out of sorrow out of pain, out of anger, rather than turning back to the Lord in Teshuvah. You know, not too long after this, Peter is the first of the, uh, the, the uh, apostles, the first of the disciples to go out and lead the nations to the Lord, to fulfill the very call that the Lord had given Israel to be a light to the nations. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' household. Long before Paul, Peter is the one that goes and reaches the Gentiles for the first time with the message of the gospel. And it all started because he was willing to stick around and repent when the opportunity arose. And he saw the beauty and the power of restoration. And if we look at Cornelius' family and the history that comes from it versus the Ninevites and the history that comes from it, two drastically different realities. All because there was a drastically different approach in the heart of the prophecy or the, 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 the messenger that the Lord sent to both. Jonah's heart was one of hatred, anger, and a wish to see them die. And Peter's was a yearning to see them come to real reality of a newfound life. That opened up the door for Paul and for the works that he did among the nations. And ultimately, it opens up the door for all of us. Because the same forgiveness Peter experienced is the same forgiveness that is available to us. Our sins put us in the same box, in the same category as Peter, as Jonah, as Judas. We all turned our back on the Lord. And yet, He's still there waiting for us to come back to Him. To turn our hearts and our lives back over to Him wholeheartedly. To give Him our everything, not so that we can be saved only. Not so that we can find atonement only. But so that we can be used by Him to go to the nations. So that we can be used by Him to bring the power and the might of God's glorious mercy and grace, atonement, forgiveness to all of those who may be willing to hear. And as easy as it was when the power of God was upon Jonah in spite of who Jonah was and what Jonah was doing, for the Ninevites to turn their heart to the Lord when they heard the word come forth, how much easier when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is within us. I think it's time that we change our attitude. I think it's time that we stop living lives of Jonah and we start living lives of Peter. I think it's time that we wholeheartedly come back in full repentance as believers of the reality that we are no better than Jonah was, but that we want to be a lot better. The world we live in is broken people. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news for five minutes. 
it is broken. And the only thing that can bring restoration is the blood atonement of Messiah. This world is hopeless. We have the hope. And much like Israel, we hoard it instead of sharing it. Much like Jonah, we care more about making sure ours are good rather than reaching out to the world around us. So I want to encourage you on this Yom Kippur as you contemplate repentance, teshuvah, atonement, the reality of God's grace and mercy. I want to encourage you today to consider what the Lord is calling you to do as a follower of Messiah. The people he's bringing you to share his good news with and have your heart broken in a way that you can impact like Cornelius' house was by Peter. That for generations upon generations to come, the world will be changed by them. Not like Jonah who goes into Nineveh and a hundred years later they die out for the same thing God was calling them to return from in the first place. Avirachimim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy that is renewed daily. Lord, I thank you that you love us more than we could ever imagine and that you love those around us more than we could ever imagine. I thank you that in spite of who we are at times, that you desire nothing more than to use us for your good and your glory. And Lord, I ask that you send us out today prepared to be used for your good and your glory. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.